Um, so welcome to the call. We're going to be talking about heart and soul community planning. Um, we're lucky to have both Betsy Rosenblatt, the Director of Projects from the Orton Family Foundation, and Jane LaFleur, Executive Director of Friends of Midwest Heart and Soul Project Coordinator. Uh, I believe we've also got Lyman Orton on the phone who might chime in towards the end of the call with some comments. Um, and we've got a whole lot of people from all over the place uh, that are calling in to, to join in the discussion today. Um, and I just wanted to give you a little um, background on, on who's on the call. Um, over 60% of you uh, know a little bit about the about heart and soul community planning and are really interested to know more. So uh, I'm hoping that that's going to spark a really great conversation. Uh, just to give you a little background on uh, call protocol, because we have quite a lot of people that are dialing in to, to join in this conversation. Um, what what I'm going to ask you to do is keep yourself on mute unless you're unless you're speaking and uh, to add any questions into the shared Google Doc that we're using to take notes. Um, if you would like me to call on you, uh, if you can add your name with your question, uh, and then I'll be able to pass the questions around to, to the appropriate people. I know there are a lot of people on this call that have a lot of really great stuff to add. So um, that's, that's going to be the best way to do this. We have quite a few people on the call, and uh, we're going to try and avoid having everyone talking over the top of each other if that sounds okay to everyone. Uh, the way we're going to run this is a, an introduction um, from Betsy and Jane about their work with Heart and Soul Community Planning. And then we'll open up for questions and discussion. And then just towards the end of the call, I'm, I'm going to put the question to, to you guys about how Community Matters can continue to support the conversation. Uh, and so with that, I'm going to pass things over to Betsy. Um, and uh, it'd be great, Betsy, if you could start us off with an introduction to your work. Sure. Uh, thanks, Bonnie, and welcome, everyone. Uh, uh, I got a brief introduction. I'm the Director of Projects at the Orton Family Foundation. And so the foundation has been working with small cities and towns, mostly in rural areas in the Rockies and in the Northeast for you know over 12 years or so. But in the last few years, we've really been on this path of what we call heart and soul community planning. And I'm going to talk a little bit, very briefly, about what that is and um, some of the work we're doing, some of the lessons we're learning, or how I see that as being a little bit different from some of the more traditional planning processes and then turn it over to Jane who can talk more specifically about a partnership that the uh, town of Damascata, Maine has with the foundation. And, and as Bonnie mentioned, I'm sure there's other folks in other communities, some of our other partners who have lots to add to the conversation and some good questions to get into. Um, so as I was thinking about, you know, speech of heart and soul community planning, I was thinking about um, how it is, to me, wider and deeper than some of the traditional planning. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about what that means. Um, but right now, you know, we started early in the development of heart and soul community planning, working with the borderlands region, Rhode Island and Connecticut, uh, testing some of the idea of how do you plan for growth? And the foundation has been helping communities, tools, and processes, um, you know, tackle the challenges of making decisions for the future as they face growth and change. So how do you do that in a values-based approach? How do you do that by coming back to the core question of what people care most about, what connects them to their place, what connects them to each other? And how do you hold that, what we call heart and soul of a community, um, as you make decisions for the future? And how do you use that as criteria to weigh those decisions on whether it will distract or enhance those values? And for us, those values, although often they're manifested physically in the environment or through some you know, economic development decisions, um, it has also elevated the importance 
the social and cultural aspects of a community. Um, and, and I can talk some more about how that ties, how those relate to each other in our work. Um, so early we tested in Borderlands. We then, a couple years ago, um, issued a competitive um, process or ran a competitive process and selected four partners, um, Victor, Idaho, Golden, Colorado, Biddeford, and Demerscotta, Maine, um, to undertake these two to even three-year projects that looked at, well, how do we work together in a community to articulate, to identify what people would call the heart and soul or the values of their community. Um, we use storytelling a lot as part of that process, and I can talk a little bit about how that worked. Um, and then we also did a project in Vermont in Starksboro that we call Art and Soul, which is using the arts for more of that civic oh, um, we move from articulation and identifying values into looking at, well, how do we use those values to identify a vision? Right. How do you weigh some of what you heard in the storytelling and the community conversation, some of that public perception with some of the trend data? Is there a disconnect or, are, are, they, are, or are they on the same page? Um, we ask some of the questions, you know, if we follow the status quo with a direction, that development or change is occurring in a community, is that where you want to go? Or what kind of intervention needs to happen in order to take control over that direction? And when I say we or you, it's really based on a very broad participation and truly getting at, and this is why these projects often are two or three years, getting at new voices and um, new parts of the community really participating in the in this dialogue. Um, we take those values, we, we've done some interesting work mapping the values and developing criteria that we use to weigh different scenarios using some of the visualization tools like Community Viz um, that some of you might be familiar with. Um, and then also using those values to drive action. So that to us is both some of the uh, regulatory plans, comprehensive plan or downtown plans, but also community development projects. You know, in some communities getting to what really shows progress, really shows how these values can play out. And um, I don't know if anyone from the borderlands is on the call, but you know, one example was in Killingly where we did a lot of work uh, exploring this notion of heart and soul and there was a strong feeling about from the community of really wanting to get have access to the river. And so the project was able to really listen to hear that and, and do a number of things that really improved public access to the riverways, as well as working on the comp plan and, and other aspects. The part that most of these projects are in now, we're in implementation, we're working on updating plans, but we're also in a discussion about stewardship. So how over time then, when the project or the partnership with the foundation is done, how do we meet this new demand for public participation? How do we maintain the kind of transparency and decision-making that's been a part of these projects? How do we continue to apply new tools and new methods to new issues that come up in a community? And ultimately, how do we best measure and report progress? And so as development proposals go forward, how does a community, um, through this heart and soul community planning process, get the tools to weigh whether that development is in line with the vision, whether that development really enhances or preserves community heart and soul, or starts to erode that which um, people have said is most important. So let me get back to the idea of wider and deeper, and then I'm going to turn it over to Jane, and in questions we can get to more detail. Um, but, you know, the storytelling is almost like a, a community interview, the way it is played out. It's, it's an important part of listening. It's an important part of uh, a process that begins not with a public hearing where people enter immediately divided on an issue. We don't begin with a question of what needs to change or what are the issues in the community. You know, we begin with the issues of, 
again, connection to community, what's important, why do you live here, why are you staying here, and really hearing each other in those individual stories, which then begins to weave a community narrative. And that's where we get to start to identify the um, community values, community heart and soul. Storytelling and some of the other community conversations really created these multiple entry points. So it was very broad participation. It wasn't, you know, storytelling to some is less intimidating. To others, you know, they choose an, another entry point to get involved. But it's not a one-size-fits-all. We spend a, a fair amount of time on communication, on using local language that's familiar, on um, ongoing communication so people can see what part of the process the project is in, um, using multimedia approaches, um, sharing the stories in different ways, um, you know, making sure that there's an aspect that as we talk about the future, to me, it should be fun. I mean, this is an opportunity instead of facing crisis to think ahead and really um, care, you know, articulate what we care about in town and using creative ways to express that and build some of that community pride. Um, there's also, uh, uh, you know, I mentioned sort of the social aspects getting elevated and, and giving merit to that. Um, and. I think Jane will be able to talk about this some more in Damascata, but how the process of both telling story and listening story really builds relationships and builds trust and bridges among groups that then creates a base for starting to struggle later on in the process with some of the tough issues and trade-offs that you face in planning for the future. So those are, are some of the aspects I just wanted to touch on a little bit, and I can get into some Specific examples, um, we do an evaluation. We've done um, an interim evaluation through interviews. Um, we're about to do some surveys and using an independent evaluator um, look at how successful it's been. But I will say there's um, been a lot of very positive feedback about um, these aspects that I'm talking about today in terms of um, really seeing much broader participation, starting a project where we map a community um, and look at informal networks in the community, who some of those informal network leaders are, how do you use that as part of your project design so that you can choose language and approaches that really make sense for different groups you're trying to reach and um, you know, build just a much, much broader participation in decision-making. So that's, uh, that's my quick overview. Uh, and Bonnie, I'm happy to, to touch on more specific examples as we go along. I think that's an incredibly rich, uh, a, a very rich overview of, of the work you're involved in. And I, I know that we will get into some of the details through some of the really great questions that people are starting to type in here. Um, starting to to seed a, a whole lot of really great conversation. Um, I think if we can pass over now to, to Jane to give us a little background on on where she's coming from and, and her experience and her work. Um, okay. Then, um, we can move this along. Uh, and I just I just like to um, ask people again. Um, while while you're listening to Betsy and Jane at the moment, uh, if you could keep yourself on mute so we can cut down some of that background noise, that'd be great. Okay, thanks. Um, welcome, everybody. I, I just want to tell you quickly a little bit about the history of the planning that's gone on in Damascata and why the town got interested in the Heart and Soul Project, and then followed by where Damascata is now in this process and some of the uh, tools that we used. And um, believe me, I, I'm sure a lot of you use some of these already, but um, we found that by using as many tools as possible, we reached many more people and, and got m much more depth than we ever thought possible. Um, and we want to talk about what a difference it's made in Damascata. Um, so Damascata is, if you don't know, in mid-coast Maine, and it has a population of about 2,000 people. So it's a very small town, but it serves as a service center for the whole region. It's in the middle of Lincoln County, and um, it pulls people from the peninsulas south of, of Damascata as well as all around the mid-coast. Um, 
It has a very vibrant downtown and, um, you know, a, a pretty balanced population of, of young and old, although it's trending towards more retirees um, coming in. And about I think it was 2005, um, Walmart expressed interest in coming to town, and um, several um, women in town heard about it and uh, started a campaign for a size cap um, to to try to um, uh, find growth and development that was better suited to the size and scale of Damascata. So after um, a very ambitious campaign, there, uh, a size cap of 35,000 square feet was passed um, by a two-to-one margin and by a town meeting vote. And also the neighboring towns also adopted either a size cap or a moratorium or some similar device um, so that uh, Walmart had second thoughts about coming to that area. Um, as a result, though, um, people felt very strongly for or against Walmart, and the town was pretty split. Even though it was a two-to-one vote, there were still some um, hard feelings and some fences that needed to be mended. So um, the uh, select board appointed a committee, which was very broad-based and uh, represented many interest areas from environmental to development to banking to, um, you know, just citizens that wanted to be involved in planning um, and also represented surrounding communities. And that group was called the Damascata Planning Advisory Committee, or DPAC. DPAC's sole mission was to engage people in um, planning and in, in in soliciting public opinion about planning and land use and the future of the town. So then um, we heard, well, they first held a bicycle and pedestrian workshop, uh, which brought out almost 100 people in talking about future bicycle and pedestrian routes in town. And um, it was a wonderful, wonderful workshop with uh, people very engaged. And then we heard about the um, Orton um, Heart and Soul Planning Project, and it seemed to fit our work to a T because DPAC's mission was to get people engaged, and the Heart and Soul Project offered uh, new tools and assistance in finding uh, ways to get people involved in the exact same issues that DPAC was looking at and the community was looking at. Um, and just a quick background. It, there is a very strong downtown, but there's also Route 1B, which is now bypassed by Route 1. Um, but Business Route 1 is uh, trending towards sprawl um, and having you know, buildings located in the middle of a lot surrounded by parking and, and that sort of thing. And a number of people ex suggested that that wasn't the necessarily the best pattern of growth uh, for for the future of Damascata. And there also was um, surrounding farmlands on the outskirts that uh, Walmart, for instance, and other businesses were looking at. So we wanted to start a conversation about what is the best thing for Damascata and make sure as many possible people were engaged as possible. So we, start, we were fortunate to be selected by the foundation, and we started this project. And Friends of Midcoast Maine um, is a project partner, and and then I was serving as a project coordinator for two and a half years. Um, the first thing we did, which we were required to do, and I don't know that we would have even thought of this mechanism, but it was to do storytelling. We sent DPAC members out with tape recorders. They sat down with their friends and neighbors and tape recorded stories uh, about those people and ha listened to why they came to town, what they think is special, what keeps them there, what do they think needs to change. Um, so those were great methods of connecting around someone's kitchen table. And it wasn't uh, invasive and it wasn't threatening, but we really started to listen to people. And out of those stories, we started to pull themes and the themes, um, there were maybe 10 or 12 different themes, and all of those themes were connected to a value. And then the values um, became part of a, a value statement that over time um, became verified and validated by, by more and more people. Um, we, and I'll quickly run through it, but also on the Google Doc is um, our final report that has some of this information. Some of the values that Damascata um, thought were important to them was were working locally, living locally, having a high level of community involvement, having culture and nature in close proximity, 
having an accessible community with easy access to goods and services and to local government and information, and having a strong sense of community. These were the values for Damascata. The other heart and soul towns had had similar but some very different values, and it really depended on that community. And I would never suggest that these values are, would apply somewhere else. I think it's a good starting point for many communities because these are um, pretty mom-and-pop apple pie type values, but but other towns have um, some other values that are just as strong and important to them. Um, we also had, um, just to name a few other methods that we used, um, those were called neighbor-to-neighbor chats, um, the tape-recorded interviews. We also had community conversations with potluck dinners where people brought a story and a dish to share. Um, and we, I think we might have had 75, 80 people come out to those, and, and some of them were topic-oriented around the shore and harbor or around special places, but we gradually gleaned more and more values from those dinners. Um, there also, um, we, we had many mechanisms to get feedback from folks. Um, there was a survey in the Lincoln County News, which is the local weekly newspaper, and we also had that available on paper um, to collect people's opinions about growth. Um, we went to the Lincoln Academy, which is the local high school, and interviewed over 300 young people about what they thought the town needed. And then probably the most um, comprehensive approach was to have a four-day planning charrette, which if you're not familiar with is a participatory design workshop with many meetings and presentations and interactive sessions about traffic and linkages and open space and uh, development patterns and businesses and all of those things. And out of that, we, we have an a extensive charrette report. It's available on the Friends of Mid-Coast Maine website, but it has all kinds of excuse me, recommendations for design as well as um, uh, other non-regulatory type recommendations. Um, one of the tools that I have started to use in many other towns, and, we're, and Betsy alluded to it, is a stakeholder analysis, and I'll put the form up on the Google Doc, but a stakeholder analysis is a tedious process, but it is worthwhile to go through. I just did the other night with another town where you identify the groups in town that are, are active or inactive in land use issues, and you, you just create a laundry list of those groups, whether it's the snowmobile club or the business organization or an environmental group or developers or the hospital or whatever it might be. And then you, and there's a whole grid that you fill out and you make your committee or your um, organization or your government or whoever the, the people are in town that are doing this walk through this grid and identify who are the people that would connect to that organization, how do you connect to them, is it an email, is it a phone call, a conversation, um, and where do you connect to them, is that the corner store or is it online or, um, you know, there are many different ways of, of reaching folks. But in Demoscata's case, I think we had like 60 or more um, groups that we needed to contact. And then we, and in addition to that, there are many people that are stakeholders that may not be part of a group at all. So um, we, we also identified those folks and who in our committee would go out to them and um, uh, connect with them and tell them about upcoming events. Um, and we can talk more about that if anyone's interested. Um, we took all the stories and we, we went through an intensive approach to map the values that come out of those stories um, to come to the, to, to the values of the community. Um, a couple more methods we used. Um, very simple. We, the town has an annual pumpkin festival. We set up a booth. We had candy corn voting, very scientific candy corn voting in jar, jelly jars where people voted for their favorite places, or another year we did it to vote for the values in town that are most important. Um, we had an intern who did chalk on the walk one summer where young people in town with their skateboards and whatever drew on the pavement uh, what they thought was important to them in town. Um, we attended local meetings and presentations. We have neighborhood meetings um, that we started. So there are many, many methods we used throughout the last two and a half years. Um, and then finally, there were things I'm sure many of you do, but everything from posters around town to banners to press releases and letters to the editor to announcements on the local cable TV. Um, we have a biweekly 
uh, electronic newsletter using Constant Contact. We put out postcards. Um, we had an insert in the Lincoln County News where um, we summarized the upcoming charrette and talked about different avenues that people can get involved. Um, and a frequently asked question brochure. And then finally, one, our student intern did a, um, uh, a video where she went around town and asked people to hold up a, a, a paper, a sign, where they wrote what's important to them about Damascata, and she turned that into a video. So it's everything from you know, my, my local store to my church to my home to the beautiful scenery, and all that became a beautiful video uh, visual for folks to give away at Christmas time or whatever. And, um, but it was just a, a, a great memory of, of Damascata. So, Dane, is, uh, is that video available on YouTube? Yeah, it's on YouTube, and I can post that link. That'd be great if you could. Uh, and, and any of the the list of amazing engagement projects that you sure. understood would be, I think, very useful to everyone. Um, I I would like to take this opportunity to to kind of open things up a little now and and start engaging with some of the questions that people have been typing in. Um, I just want to remind everyone that the call is being recorded and will be av available as a podcast um, after the fact. Um, there are a bunch of really great questions in here, and uh, I'm going to throw open uh, the first question to, to Betsy um, and and uh, to follow up with Jane, if, if you wouldn't mind, um, around the kind of outcomes um, that Heart Soul Community Planning can can expect when when you undertake something like this in a community. What what happens? What is the result of it? Yeah, um, sure. I can I can talk a little bit about it. Um, um, I mean, I think one important part for us that's really a long-term change is almost like a culture change, and it's a culture change in terms of both how decisions get made and participation. And so, what we're finding people are really responding to is a different kind of civil dialogue. That's, that is much more civil. Not that there isn't lots of room for disagreement, but it's a different conversation where people are listening to each other. Oftentimes, and this gets at some of the other questions, oftentimes um, for the first time understanding where those points of view come from. You know, in a planning commission public hearing, there is very little time. There's usually a five-minute timer, and you give your position, and that's it. But you're not really exploring or understanding um, different points of view and and where they're coming from and where there is um, common agreement. And so we're hoping that by changing the nature of that dialogue, um, by changing the ability to see that there is a fair amount of consensus or at least common ground in terms of values, although there might be disagreement for how you then um, move to act on those values, but we're hoping that that ability to find enough consensus to take action lives on over the long term. And so for us, what we start to measure is not just participation and participation of people for the first time getting involved in some of these projects, um, but how um, decisions get made, how communities are taking action, um, how they're embedding some of these values and the voices that they heard through the process in updating some of the regulations and policies and plans, um, and applying them then as new discussions, new situations um, happen down the road. So, you know, I would have to be honest and say the, the jury's still out a little bit over over the long term, how much of an impact just a two-year project has made uh, in, for the duration in communities that have been struggling with these issues for a long time, but at least in the short term, we're finding some very positive results. And, and I would just add that uh, in Dermascotta's case, I think it has raised people's expectations about how they can get involved and how government... Um, how they interact with government. It's no longer the only the it's no longer the only way to get involved is you come out to a public hearing. You know, by even by having the list serve and hundreds of names on it, we're letting people know what's going on uh, all the time. And so they can choose to get involved or not get involved or they or at least they have um 
you know, common information, and perhaps we, I would hope that there's not as, as much uh, hearsay. Um, and I think that also, and I know one of the selectmen may be on this call, um, uh, the select board uh, uses DPAC as their eyes and ears because it's no longer just a squeaky wheel that comes into their meeting, but it is they're hearing from many, many more people, and many more people are coming to the select board meetings, they're coming to DPAC meetings, they want to know what's going on. So it's really raised the expectations of citizens. Yeah, I think a great story that illustrates that, Jane, in Golden, um, the uh, Teresa, one of the planners, was telling me about um, they after going through a very extensive heart and soul open public planning process, they worked on a, a creek corridor project, and um, people were very clear about what they were not happy with about public participation because the ex level of expectation had been raised. And that is a good thing. I mean, we're hoping that all of the volunteers and all of the citizens that have been involved then will make their time worth it by staying involved and demanding a different way of, you know, gathering input and making community decisions. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I want to follow that up um, with Arthur's question. Um, Arthur from Franklin's Foundation. Putting your name down there. Um, Arthur has asked, have you identified any community sizes, smaller or largest, where this approach works works well or, or I would say works, works best? Um, you know, if I could just take, Betsy, I'm sure you have a deeper in, information about that, but I work with towns from in, all the way up to maybe ten or 15,000, but not much more than that. So they're all pretty small towns. And yet the tools we use apply to every single town and the point is to get as many people involved as possible that it's it's bottom up planning it's finding ways to get people involved and just a quick tool we use we learn the sticky note method i should own um stock in the 3m company but we give everybody a pad of sticky notes when they walk in the door and a and a pencil and because there's always people that don't want to speak in a meeting and they they always hand us sticky notes some people are writing furiously through the meeting because they're not going to stand up and talk and by handing us sticky notes after we record their their input and it's just a way of getting folks um uh, in, involved, and I think that kind of tool can be used everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I chime in a little bit. I, I agree, Jane, and I think um, for the larger cities um, on a neighborhood level, there's a lot of parallels. I mean, there's a lot of exciting projects uh, in, in different neighborhoods in the more urban areas that, you know, follow a, a similar approach or could apply some of these tools. I mean, I think in some ways what's unique about this process of heart and soul community planning is bringing so many of these pieces together um, in a fairly lengthy process that really invests in the long term um, and looks at a very broad array. I mean, that's a broad list of values that then um, get worked on through the project. You know, for us, I think there is a capacity issue. You know, we're finding some of the smaller communities of a couple thousand very limited staff um, have a harder time um, maintaining some of these problems. It requires intense volunteer efforts. Um, Golden and Bitterford are closer to about 20,000 people. Um, there's a little more capacity. You know, Damascata has done quite well through regional partnerships. Um, so there isn't, we haven't found yet, though I'm really interested in this project, if there is an ideal size, if there's an ideal sort of community readiness factor. But I will say there's a certain basic capacity that um, both in municipal government is very helpful and what we require is a partnership with a regional organization, in Jane's case it was Friends of Mid-Coast Maine, that can lend some of that capacity to the smaller cities and towns. And, and if I could just add, um, even though it took, you know, I spent at least two days a week in Dermascata for the first two years, it, 
I could not have, we could not have accomplished what we accomplished without a very, very active committee because those committee members went out with the tape recorders. They hung the signs. They talked to their neighbors. They brought people out. And in addition, during the charrette, um, volunteers helped run every part of that charrette and drew and colored and gave food and businesses contributed. So it was an enormous, enormous community volunteer effort. And we would not be where we are today without all of those folks. That's a, that's a great comment. And it, it really feeds into another question I see here, um, which is what action do you want community members to take and how do you refresh the resilience of the community? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like um, when both of you are talking about these projects that there is a really strong element of community participation that really kind of feeds these uh, yeah. kind of work. Um, do you have any thoughts or comments on um, on how to start to catalyze that kind of engagement? You know, you know. Oh, go ahead, Betsy. I think it's important to allow people to enter and leave these processes based on what their interests are. And so, for some folks, when it comes to taking action and actually showing up for a trail um, or uh, do a, you know, a project with the school, then that's where they see their role, even though they've been following the planning process all along. And likewise, some folks are in it for the long haul from the beginning and have um, you know, more capacity to go through a long planning process and and some of them might naturally turn over. I think, you know, a key to success is when you do have a turnover of volunteers, you know, is there a core behind that who then can step up to the plate and participate and keep the project on track? And that's a real measure of success. But I think it is a, a core, core question. As you know, on any issue in a town, it, it's often the same, what, 20-some volunteers who seem to do so much in a community. And so how do you reach out and get um, some new volunteers involved, whether it's a project like this or even just a you know, planning commission? So um, you know, we've been looking at ways where people can stay informed. We've been looking at new tools like um, iNeighbors and online communication vehicles for keeping people informed, uh, folks who commute and might get their information online at night versus you know, folks who get it through the school newsletter and just using an array of tools so people are aware and then always having an, an open opportunity for new people to come in at any point and not feel as if they've missed something or it's too late. The other thing I would add is, and Damascata, we we need to do this more, but uh, we need to celebrate more. You know, I, I the more I talk to other communities, I learn that, Damascata has done some wonderful things, and we always feel like, or I at least feel, we're in the thick of it, and there's the next issue or stress around the corner or something that we have to do next, but we don't take enough time to celebrate the things we've accomplished, and we really have done a lot. I mean, that charrette was massive, and we have, um, you know, some great marching orders to continue to test and work through with the community. And um, I didn't mention this, but we're looking into form-based codes as a mechanism to carry out some of the um, uh, future growth and development patterns for the town. And and we have a series of 12 to 14 workshops coming up, 24 hours segments of multiple workshops and field studies and things like that. So um, all of that is, is starting up and continuing to as we start to implement um, the planning that we've done. So we just have to celebrate more because there have been so many hundreds of people involved and, you know, they have to be able to come and go and, and not everybody wants to sit in a meeting. They, they have other ideas of, of how they can best contribute and that's great. We need every single but person who has something to give to, to the whole process because we all care about the future of our town and you just give what you can and, and that's what I always look for. Yeah, and when you implement as you go, then people start to see that that all the talk to action. So I think it's really important, even if it's something really small, like uh, Jane having the one of the restaurants downtown open up their menu to students after school. You know, that's a that's a very small project, but it makes such a big difference that when young people weigh in and say there's nowhere for us to go downtown, and all of a sudden they have a place that's part of the community on the main street, 
and it happens and it's you know open and you're able to advertise it, it shows that all that talk actually can lead to action. And that's where community members then, I think, will start to see that momentum and, and participate more in making things happen. That's a, that, that's a common theme around participation and, uh, and building partnerships and getting local businesses engaged. Um, I, I want to touch on a question here that I'm seeing, which is um, that, that there's a, a lot of work involved in this, obviously, and, uh, and that there are costs associated with that and requirements for resources. Um, and I'm just wondering if you can touch on any, um, any clever ways to build partnerships, or, and also if there's anyone else on the call that, that might be able to add to that, because I know there are a lot of people uh, on here today that have got some experience in this kind of work. So, um, Betsy, do you want to jump in on that to start with and then see if there's anyone else that would like to comment? Sure. Um, Bonnie, and the question is just about how how to build some of these partnerships. And the cost. That's a great way to start. Okay. And the cost. Um, uh, you know, I think as we start these projects, it's important to look at um, what stake different organizations in town have in the outcomes and to be able to see where there's overlap uh, in that. And I think the way that the project carried out in a very um, collaborative way has invited stakeholders to really participate um, because it's sort of a co-creative process, right? It's especially in this first round of Heart and Soul Community Planning, um, we've left the door open for communities to tailor it to, the, to their community and to think creatively about um, how they're going to structure this process. And so by these committees really having um, quite a bit of say in the direction of the project and in the outcomes, um, the partners have stayed at the table. You know, Jane can comment otherwise. In terms of cost, you know, this, the foundation uh, has a program and we'll have another RFP um, late spring this year that we'll issue where we do provide training and technical assistance as well as covering uh, some of the financial costs. So it was $100,000 over a two-year two period. Um, for other communities, I think there's the ability to take parts of this heart and soul community planning process and apply them. Um, we're also building our resources to do more training, more online resources, more case studies at the foundation so that there's more information that communities can use um, if they're taking it on themselves within their own staff and their own partnerships. Um, and Jane wants to, to chime in. Well, um, through this past two years, I think we did everything that the foundation asked us to do and more, and we did all kinds of – we used all kinds of ideas that came from the community. And, you know, it was very intensive um, and extensive. And I, I don't know that that level is necessary in every single town to accomplish great things. I think um, you, you do what is appropriate for your town and for your scale, and, and the important thing is to just get people involved. It, you know, we can't continue to do this planning where it's top-down and we know best. You know, we, it, I'm, I'm a city planner, and you know, we really have, the people know best, and they know what they want in their community, and that's where we have to find our answers. It's okay to fine-tune that with, um, you know, expertise and data and knowledge, but, but the people know what they, they want their community to turn into and how they want it to change, and we all know it's going to change. So, you know, I think the answers come from the people. So, um, you know, you can do it on any scale you need to, but... Um, you know, and and I I think Dammer Scott has done some great low tech things and some great high tech things, and, um, and I hope they'll continue to do it all as best they can. And some of this early cost is the cost of you know the experimentation and trying all the different tools to see what works. And so as we we're drafting in the midst of drafting a handbook, 
um, that's based on this experience, I think others will be able to, you know, pick and choose what matches up best for their community and where they are in the process. I think I think everyone will find that really useful. And I I think in the in the vein of uh, including the the voice of the people, is there anyone on the call that that would like to comment on their experiences, either building partnerships or the challenges they're facing? Um, undertaking some of this work. Jump in. I uh I know I saw the only name I've seen come up in the in the question so far is Arthur. If uh do you have any comments that you can make to the group um or or comment on, on your question in particular? Uh this is Arthur. No actually my, my question was answered and I think the 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 perspective of speaking about Neighborhoods, when we get into larger urban areas, is a good one. Of uh, you know, taking uh, comparing a, a small town or village to a, a set of blocks that includes maybe the same um, number of people and <clears throat> a similar uh, level of uh, business and government leadership. And uh, I was just, I think, Mike, the purpose of my question was kind of just wondering, you know, how it scales and how where where do you um, start to feel stress in the in that particular method of heart and soul, and I think I got the answer that I was looking for, yeah. so thank you. And just to add on to that, um, in Dermascotta, we have neighborhood meetings too, which are, you know, might be 30 people, and uh, we're starting to use those neighborhood meetings to identify neighborhood issues that people care about, and they may be very different than what the community as a whole care about. It may be, uh, cares about, it might be, you know, traffic speeds or, um, you know, safe walking to school or things like that. So, um, and it, you know, it's much more grassroots, but but you still get the kind of information you need. So you're right, it should be scale appropriate. That's great. Is there is there anyone else that would like to chime in that, um, that has a particular question that we haven't uh, captured in the conversation yet? Um, Around the, the impact on this of this kind of work or their experiences undertaking this, um, I've I've seen one question around uh, people undertaking this work under a different name. Um, is there anyone that has experience doing this kind of work that calls it something differently, or uh, or Jane and Betsy? Do you do you know of anything else that that is similar that you could talk to that? Um, that, that you see happening? You know, I, I see it as community building, and it could happen on any level. You know, it can happen regarding farms, it can, uh, or, you know, farms to schools. It can happen in so many areas, in, in local business support. Whatever, whatever the issues are that are important to the town, it's how you get people involved and engaged and, and working on these things locally. And, um, you know, we just use many, many tools to try to find the best combination of me mechanisms to reach people. Um, but it can, it, you can use them in any issue. Um. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have looked for uh, some of the best practices from um, community development and uh, land use planning fields, but we've also looked at some really different disciplines. I mean, the storytelling came from... Um, you know, some amazing and very inspiring work that's happening um, using story in other very different kinds of projects. Um, and our art in Seoul, we're using um, art making and an artist as sort of the entry point to some of the community dialogue. Uh, again, looked at just other different disciplines in some of the um, work that's happening. And so there is quite you know, just amazing, inspiring work around the country, and I think it's a question of um, what we're constantly doing, and we'll try to um, do even more so on our website, is to look at those best practices and put those forward and constantly adapt and readapt so they work for the communities that we're in. Uh, another uh, application could be uh, we've got a sustainability project that we're doing with our county extension, and it's very much uh, foreseen as training leaders who then go out and meet with uh, groups 
and again, not just community groups, but could be Boy Scout groups or uh, 4-H or uh, civic organizations that would be undertaking uh, work to address sustainability issues in the community, which includes uh, food, uh, energy, water, and so forth. Great. Hi, this is Jan Blair from the Village of Irvington in New York. And uh, we have, uh, we've been holding roundtable discussions, and what we've done is we have invited all the neighboring communities to participate. We've had all the elected officials like uh, zoning boards, planning boards, mayors, and all the elected officials and people that serve on the conservation boards. And it started out as a small project, and we grew out. We outgrew the size of the library. We had to go to a bigger library. And we have people participating from far away. And I think that because a lot of times these boards are volunteer boards and they have a full-time job in the city and they don't have the knowledge that they need to make the final decision on a planning board. And I think that they were very excited to attend these meetings. And the, the attendance just increases every time we have another meeting because they're just they can't wait to get to the next step to find out more information about environmental issues and I think it's a great learning process and I think that it they understand now that it crosses borders and they they all have the same issues that they're dealing with but they're all trying to deal with them on an independent issue uh, level and when in fact we've now in our town we have five towns that formed a consortium to deal with those issues like stormwater management and those and building smart smart planning so that's what we're doing in our town. Um, this is this is Lane McClelland in the New College at the University of Alabama. And uh, I guess all I would like to share is that we've been trying to explore. We haven't gotten where y'all have gotten so far. Uh, there are a number of, well, a number. There are at least two or three groups that we've been in partnership with who are already doing community histories. Um, some of that was through storytelling. Some of it was uh, interviews through video and getting the high school students to interview the elders and such as that. And um, we have been trying to work with our deliberative democracy um, program here to get those two things combined, which is exactly what uh, Heart and Soul, it seems to me, has done. So we're continuing to watch for how you've done that effectively. And I'm very encouraged to think that we can take this thing to another level. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, we've um, uh, been lucky to also uh, 